Well, if you're not here every week, you may be shocked to learn that we're actually done with First Peter now. Uh, and I decided what we would do is we're going to look at four different passages about conversions in the Scripture. Uh, all of them will come from Acts. So turn to Acts 8. That's what we'll be today, just looking at famous conversion stories, uh, ones that I find uh, especially interesting. So we'll do that. Uh, we'll do a couple sermons as we lead into officer nominations. We'll do a couple sermons, one on deacons and one on elders, and then we'll jump into the book of 1 Samuel. So that's the, the road map for where we're heading in the future. But for now, we're in Acts chapter 8. Uh, actually, this is a side note. Sorry. Hannah, could you have Allie Ray get a Kleenex and bring it to me, please? Sorry, Allie Ray. Called you out in the sermon. All right, so Acts 8. So while you're turning there... Uh, there's nothing like a good scare to get your blood pumping. So have you ever done this? Have you ever plugged in a vacuum to do some cleaning only to be loudly and violently informed that the switch was already turned on on that vacuum? Well, it's never a very pleasant surprise. And the less you are paying attention, the more it gets you. See, funny things happen when you aren't ready. Thank you, Allie Ray. Um, so when you are surprised by something and you're not ready for it, it can really get you. And the same is true there. So there's a similar issue in the life of a believer. When we're thinking about evangelism and missions, we often get very focused on how are we supposed to go about them? What plans should we have? We focus on what we think the right plans are, what we think the right avenues are. We get really focused and sometimes we forget. We forget that we're not really the ones ultimately in charge of those situations. The Holy Spirit is the one who actually moves and moves in power to save the lost. He uses us to share the gospel, but he is always the primary mover, not us. And I think because of pride and a sense of self-importance, we often are focused on the wrong thing. And then the Spirit drops an opportunity to share the gospel right in our laps, out of nowhere, and we aren't ready for it. We do not lead in evangelism or missions. The Spirit does. And despite what we sometimes act like, the Spirit is alive, He is active, and He is at work. And so if He is doing all those things, as He has promised, then we need to wait on Him. And then we need to be ready when He gives us that nudge, when He pushes us to say something, to do something, to interact with someone. So because the Spirit is active, you must be ready to move. That's the thesis, the proposition for the sermon. So with that background, let's read Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him. And heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you were reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, 
Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So the Great Commission commands us to evangelize the world with the gospel. The question then is, how do we go about evangelizing? What's the best method? Should we be street preachers and stand on a soapbox and yell at the corner of every street? Are revivals the best option? Maybe we need to really crush unbelievers in online debates like on Facebook. Well, God can use all of those methods. But I think the primary means of evangelism are really very clear in this passage. So let's look at three points and walk through the passage. So the first point, connect and love. Connect and love. Now, most theologians, they summarize the whole book of Acts as a story of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, establishing his church in the world. And in this book, we see the Spirit moving in amazing ways to spread the church abroad to those who had never heard the gospel before. And Acts chapter 1, verse 8, gives really the theme of the book. When Jesus said to the disciples, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now the rest of the book is really an explanation of how the Spirit of Christ guided and worked through those men to build up his church. To really fulfill what Acts 1, 8 promised. Now, at times, the disciples received extraordinary revelation from God telling them exactly what to do. Other times, they used more normal, ordinary means of planning and going about things. Well, in the passage for today, Philip received special revelation from God. In verse 26, we're told that an angel of the Lord commanded Philip to rise and go toward the south, towards Gaza. Now, Here's an interesting fact. No Jew of the day would have been able to tell you the reason to go south towards Gaza. You know why? Because there wasn't one. There was no reason to go south towards Gaza. As one commentator explained it, Gaza was sort of like that last gas station sign when you're leaving town for before, you know, 200 miles till the next gas. It was kind of that place, the last stop in the middle of nowhere on the way to nowhere. So this is a strong hint in the text that this place literally was nowhere. And that's where Philip was told to go. And the author, you'll notice, even goes out of his way to add, this is a desert place. What a great little comment. Well, that's going to be an important detail later in the text. But for now, just understand that Philip was not headed to a bustling metropolis of thousands ready to be evangelized. But nonetheless, Philip, even though he didn't know the plan, 
he obeyed the command of the Lord. He rose and he went as commanded. Then in the middle of nowhere, along comes a chariot with a very important man inside. This man from Ethiopia was traveling back home. This man was an official, a court official, in charge of all of the queen of Ethiopia's treasures. Now, just a side note, you'll see the name Candace in your text. And this was actually just the title for the queens of Ethiopia at the time. They actually ruled in place of their sons. The sons were considered gods. They were considered sons of gods. And so they were too holy to be involved in the nitty-gritty of ruling an empire. So the mother would rule on their behalf, and they were termed Candace. But anyway, back to this man. This man, despite this paganism going on in his home country, he appeared to take no part in worshiping false gods or worshiping the kings of his own land. He was returning from Jerusalem where he had gone to worship the true God. And as he was riding back home, he was reading aloud, which was the normal custom of the day, from the prophet Isaiah. Meanwhile, the spirit commanded Philip to go over and join this chariot. Simple enough command, right? Easy command. But you need to understand that there's a little bit more going on in this situation than we will recognize as modern readers. First of all, this man was a foreigner. At best, he could be described as a God-fearer, but he was not a Jew. And in fact, most would put a foreigner like this Ethiopian below even a Samaritan. Now, Samaritans were half-Jews. They were Jews who had intermarried with the surrounding pagan nations. And the Jews hated the Samaritans. They considered them garbage. They considered them trash. So you don't want to be ranked even with or below a Samaritan. But additionally, this Ethiopian man served in a pagan court in a faraway land. But worse still, this man was a eunuch. And Deuteronomy expressly forbids eunuchs from entering into the assembly of the Lord. This man wanted to worship God, but he had to do so from a distance. He may have been a very powerful man in his own land, but to most Jews, he was simply not worth their time. The Pharisees of the day would likely have rejected this man, and some may have even refused to go anywhere near him. But Philip didn't hesitate to obey the word of the Lord. He approached this eunuch as commanded. And as he approached, what does he hear but this, this man reading the word of God? And I think even at that moment, the significance of what passage this man was reading, I think that struck Philip. He went as commanded, but he still had not joined the chariot, which was the second part of the Spirit's command. And so he spoke to the Ethiopian. He spoke to the Ethiopian with love and with care. And here we see this famous exchange between the two of them. Philip asks, do you understand what you are reading? And the eunuch replied, how can I? unless someone guides me. So clearly, even at this point, we see the spirit at work in this man's heart. He was a man of great wealth, power, and prestige, but he was humbled before the word of God. He knew he needed someone else in order to make the word clear for him. And so the eunuch invited Philip up to join him, thus fulfilling the second part of the spirit's command to Philip. So what did Philip do right to gain this invitation? Well, he did take an interest in the man, and he asked a good question. He connected in love despite who this person was as an outcast. But the underlying reason behind it all is that the Spirit worked out everything in this situation perfectly. 
so it would flow together perfectly. He brought Philip to this man at the right time, in the right moment, with the right question to bring about the planned result. Very little of this outcome in the grand scheme of things actually depended upon Philip himself. Now, he had a crucial role. Don't misunderstand me or the spirit would not have carried him there in the first place. But in this first step of connecting with the eunuch, the spirit is the one who orchestrated all the necessary things to open the door for Philip to jump in and connect with this man. So often we want well thought out evangelism plans and procedures and things like evangelism explosion. They are great tools. Don't miss. Don't mishear me. But they should never be used at the expense of waiting on the Spirit. Now, we do not receive direct revelation from God or angels telling us exactly what to do or where to go. He doesn't send us angels like that. But he does give us opportunities to connect with people. He opens doors to connect with others that, in ways that we never would have thought of. And so our duty is to be able to recognize when he is opening up that door for us to work in. When the door is open, we must jump in and we need to connect with others. Ask them questions. Be present with them. Care about whatever the topic is that they are on. Display the love of Christ to unbelievers and find that point of contact so that you can make the connection from that to the gospel. So that takes us to point two, communicating the gospel. Communicate gospel. So the passage which the eunuch was studying was from Isaiah 53. We read it earlier, uh, verses 7 through 8 in particular. And those verses are about, really the whole chapter is about Jesus as a suffering servant. So this man was intently studying these verses, but he didn't understand them. So he asked the question, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? Who is this one who suffered silently while marching on to an unjust death? He's just asking questions about the text. What is going on here? And in a way, don't you wish this would happen to you? How nice would it be to go drive into town and see people reading their Bibles everywhere and just asking good questions? And it was a great question that this man asked. Who suffered like that and why would he? You talk about setting somebody up. Philip didn't miss his opportunity. He didn't stop the eunuch there so he could go through the steps of a program. He didn't stop him so he could say, hold on, I need to remember that acronym real quickly. He began by addressing the question that had been asked. The text says that Philip, beginning with this scripture, the one that the eunuch had just read, told him the good news about Jesus. He started where the eunuch was. Notice that he didn't stop at that passage. He began there, but then he moved on and connected it with other passages. Philip didn't stop at the immediate context of Isaiah 53, but he used the original question in order to make the connection to the larger significance of the passage. And that significance is its relationship to Jesus Christ and his gospel. Because Jesus is on every page of the scriptures, even in the Old Testament. All of the Old Testament points to and explains who the Messiah will be. And then the New Testament presents the Messiah and confirms that, yes, this is the one we have been waiting for. 
Now, that doesn't mean that every passage is equally as easy to see Christ in. Some are more subtle. Some are more difficult to understand. But Isaiah 53 is not one of those difficult ones. The significance of this Isaiah passage is amazing for two different reasons. First, it explains the doctrine of the atonement beautifully. And second, this section of Isaiah is especially significant for a Gentile eunuch. And we'll explain those two parts in order. So first, this passage gives a robust explanation of the doctrine of the atonement. The chapter on the suffering servant gives all of the information needed to explain how our salvation was accomplished through Jesus Christ. First, the chapter explains that everybody, every man, every woman is completely and totally lost on their own. Everyone is born a sinner and therefore is deserving of God's wrath and condemnation. When the wrath of God falls on a sinner, it is because the sinner has earned his just judgment. God will never punish more or less than someone deserves ever. If mankind is to be saved, he needs a savior. Because he cannot save himself. No one is able to escape their sin and their hatred of God on their own. They need to be reconciled to God. They need a divine rescue. They need a divine Savior. Therefore, it was the will of God, because of his great love and mercy, to send a Messiah to rescue those who could not save themselves. Understand that we were God's enemies before being called. We were not his friends and we were not neutral. We were his enemies. If you had an enemy, think about how you would treat them in a war. Think about how you would treat them if they tried to fight you. And yet God goes on a mission to save his enemies. How shocking is that? And more so, who could have guessed the way in which the God of the universe would redeem his people? The eternal Son of God who has sat at the throne forever He took on human flesh, leaving the glory of heaven in order to be humiliated. He took on the same flesh that he himself created, thus binding the Son of God to human flesh forevermore. And as if taking on flesh was in and of itself not enough of a condescension for our sake, he came in humility even by human standards. He didn't arrive in purple robes of royalty or at the head of a grand army ready to conquer. He was born into a low estate in a humble family, really to nothing. Jesus came to conquer sin and rescue his beloved children, not through force, but through his own suffering. He came to earth as a suffering servant to serve those who rejected him on their own. The God of the universe took on flesh in order to enter into his own creation so he could go and suffer and die on a cross. As one cursed. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Your sin was placed upon the Son of God so that he might carry it far away from you. They were placed on one who was completely and totally innocent because no one else could pay the penalty of your sin for you. 
And more than that, his righteousness, his perfect life was imputed, was given over to you. And because of the life and the blood of Christ, you can stand before the Father completely innocent of sin and imperfectly complete in robes of righteousness. Pure, holy, and white. And that, in a nutshell, is what we call the doctrine of the atonement. Those who trust in Christ by faith are covered by his blood. The gospel message is what the eunuch needed to hear that day. He needed to be covered by the redeeming blood of Jesus. He needed the salvation that can only come through faith in Christ. So that's the first reason for the significance of Isaiah. The second reason that the Isaiah passage is so significant is what it meant to this man in particular as an outsider and as a eunuch. Now, the chapters that follow Isaiah 53 build on the results of that suffering servant's sacrifice. There's a promise of a new covenant in chapter 54. And then in 55, there's a promise of a new creation. And then you get to Isaiah 56. And in 56 verses 3 through 8, there's a promise that is applied in a special way to one who is both a eunuch and an outsider. So just listen carefully to these words from verses 3 through 8. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. This man had two things working against him in order to worship God. First, he was a Gentile foreigner. Now, that's bad enough since it limits the access, how far into the temple you can go to worship. But he was also a eunuch, which further limited his ability to come into worship. But because of the work of Jesus, this man who was once far off and far removed from the assembly of God is able to come near. His access to the throne of grace, to the throne of God, was no longer limited. He, like everybody else who believes in Jesus, gained the right to come into the very presence of God with the rest of the church. And worship. He was an outcast. He was childless. But through faith he gained an inheritance as the heir of a king. He, don't forget who he is, was a powerful man in his own country. He was in charge of one of the greatest treasuries in the world at the time. But as Philip told him the good news about Jesus, he found a treasure far greater than any he had known before. The gospel brought him life and ushered him into the family of faith. The Spirit, 
sent Philip into the middle of the middle of nowhere to a man who was spiritually nowhere so that he could lead him to a land of plenty. The Holy Spirit gave a man who was spiritually thirsting in a physical desert living water. Philip communicated the gospel by addressing the Ethiopian eunuch where he was and by applying the truth. He worked in the situation that the Spirit provided to share the hope of Jesus. He connected this man and his situation to joy in Christ. So here's a diagnostic question for you. Could you do the same if the Spirit provided you an open door? Can you clearly and lovingly explain the gospel to someone who is hungering and who is thirsting for the truth? Now, in a sense, simply to know Christ is to understand the gospel. But that doesn't mean that just by being saved yourself, you will know how to effectively explain that hope that lives within you. Practice and be prepared to explain the gospel hope to anyone who asks. And really be ready to bridge the gap between the experience of the unbeliever and the truths of the word. Because at the end of the day, that's all evangelism really is. Saying you have a need. And this is how the gospel of God builds that. Really, that's evangelism. So final point, point three, confirm the message. So as we continue on into verse 36, we see a second miraculous event in this passage. Remember the terrain that these men were traveling through, but the author just took a little moment to tell us what the terrain was like? The author went out of his way to tell us that this was a desert region in verse 26. So how likely, if you're in a desert, is it to stumble upon water? Is that a common occurrence if you're marching through a desert? It's not a very likely event. But in the providence of God, they came upon this water at exactly the right time. So whether this was a known existing stream or a miraculous appearance of a pool of water, it's really unclear. But it was a miracle either way because in God's timing, he provided water where there was none before or where there was not water to be expected. And with the water present, the possibility of baptism became a reality. And notice how this event follows the pattern both of the Great Commission and Acts 1.8. Clothed with the power of the Holy Spirit, Philip proclaimed the gospel and discipled this eunuch from Ethiopia. But what's the next step according to the Great Commission? To confirm the faith that he had and declare him a member of the church by faith. And the way to do that was through baptism. So with God providing the means for the baptism in an amazing way, Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. And notice the repetition and the strength of the wording there in verse 8. They both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch. They began as two separate parties with no connection. But what began with Philip joining the chariot now ends with the eunuch joining the communion of saints. And as the covenant sign of baptism was placed upon the eunuch, he was marked as belonging to Jesus and the church. Now, baptism pictures many things in our salvation. It represents the cleansing of sin. It is a picture of the Spirit falling upon our hearts. Through it, we see our union with Jesus. And in all these things, it's a sign and a seal that you are a member of the church of God and that all the promises of the gospel have been offered to you 
to grasp onto them by faith. As one of my seminary professors always says, baptism is a sign that says, I'm on the team. It is a mark that allows you to say, I am the Lord's. This eunuch went down to the water to be baptized because he was no longer a member of this world. Now he belonged to Jesus, and he wanted to be confirmed with the sign of faith in Jesus. He began that day as a member of a completely different tribe than Philip. But he emerges from that water as a fellow heir and brother of the promises of God. So what's the result of all this? Well, he continued his journey back home, but with one marked difference. Now he is rejoicing in his salvation. Now you might expect, as you read through the text, for that Philip being whisked away by the Spirit might have confused this man. But with the wonders of what had already happened, that may have been the least remarkable thing about his day. He carried on back home, but now is a steward of the gospel of grace. Meanwhile, Philip ended up in Azotus, and he evangelized and traveled on to Caesarea. What an ordinary follow-up to one of the most remarkable conversion stories in all of Scripture. However, that wasn't the end of the story for either man. Philip continued preaching and evangelizing as an apostle. And that Ethiopian eunuch carried Christianity back to his home country as a missionary. An early church father named Irenaeus reports that he evangelized his nation and led many people to Christ. John Calvin notes that his power and his influence as the queen's treasurer allowed him open doors in which he could then go and share the gospel, the message of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, with others. So it appears that hundreds or possibly thousands, if you consider future generations, came to faith because of the Holy Spirit telling one apostle to go into the middle of nowhere to speak with one man who was an outsider and an outcast by Jewish standards. I bet you Philip couldn't come up with that plan if he dreamed and thought about it for a long time. But the Spirit is always at work with greater plans than we could ever come up with, and often in ways that we least expect. One of my favorite passages about uh, the Spirit and really about salvation is in John 3, 8. And there Jesus says that the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So truly the Holy Spirit of Christ is the true master. We can come up with evangelism plans. We can come up with strategies, and I believe we should do that. But we better be flexible and ready, relying on the Spirit to guide us and to prepare us, because otherwise even our best efforts are going to be useless in the end. The Spirit works according to His good pleasure, and He utilizes whatever tools bring Him the most glory in the end. Our job is simply to be faithful wherever He leads us. So when the Lord presents you opportunities to share the gospel and someone believes, marvel at the work of the Holy Spirit. Then confirm the faith that the Spirit has created in that person. Now, I'm not telling you at that moment to go find some water and baptize them yourself. Don't, don't do that. Philip had the authority and the ability to baptize that missionary before sending him out on the field. But you can connect them to the church where they can be baptized. 
You can disciple them and teach them more about Christ. Or if you only have that moment, you can just give them the assurance of the Scriptures that those who repent and believe in the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. Give them the gospel and trust that the Spirit of God will be at work. So whether you are evangelizing unbelievers or even teaching the children in this very church, trust the Spirit of Jesus to move. He will be the one at work. That's how you came to believe in the first place. The Spirit of God had to supernaturally work in your heart. And others don't come to Christ any differently. So do your duty. Pray for God to save. Seek opportunities. When the door is opened, connect, communicate the gospel, and confirm the message. The Spirit of God is active, living, and moving. He is preparing things for you. Opportunities for you. So when he opens that door, are you going to be ready? Let's pray. Oh, Holy Spirit, you move in truly mysterious ways. The wind blows here, the wind blows there. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know where it's going. But Lord, we know you have a plan. And that your plan far surpasses anything we can come up with, anything we can conjure on our own. Lord, you have called us to be faithful, not to save people on our own. You know we can't do that. We know we can't do that. But we know that you are at work and that you call us to go share. You could have spoken directly to this eunuch and not even involved Philip, and yet you chose to use your church, to use your children to preach the message to other children. So, Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to pray for the lost. Help us to notice the opportunities that you open before us. You don't send us angels in this life. You don't speak verbally to us. But you do guide us. You do give us nudges here and there. We do see open doors. So, Lord, humble our hearts. Help us to rely on you. And help us to recognize where that gospel message door is open. That we might share life. The life of Christ. Lord, help us to do this, we pray. For we ask it in your name. Amen.